All right. It's good to see all of you here this morning. As we turn to hearing the Word of God preached, let us come in God's Word to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25, verses 1 and 11. We finally come this morning, brothers and sisters, to the end of Abraham's life. And we have spent several months now looking at the life of Abraham here from the book of Genesis. Uh, but as you're turning there, I think it'd be helpful for us to take a moment and reflect upon anyone who you know or who you have known who has lived a full life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and who remains an example to you even after their death. Does anyone come to your mind? Well, there are two that recently passed away that immediately come to my mind. The first, almost all of you know well, R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul died December 14th, 2017, when he was 78 years old. Of course, he's the founder of Ligonier Ministries, which has now become the largest reformed education and discipleship ministry in the world. But for me personally, I can say I would not be the man I am without the ministry and influence of R.C. Sproul. And he has been a testimony of faithfulness through his life. And it even continues in his death. There's another man that came to my mind. And he's a man many of you also know well, Ted Chrisman, or as many of us affectionately knew him, P.T., simply stood for Pastor Ted. Pastor Ted died a little over a year ago on February 4th, 2019, and he himself was 73 years old. But he was the, fa the, the, the founding pastor. He planted Heritage Baptist Church just down the road in Owensboro, Kentucky, where he remained the faithful pastor for 46 years. And as I think of the life of Pastor Ted, I can also say I would not be the pastor that I am today without the faithfulness and the modeling and the influence that Pastor Ted has had on my life. You know, what stands out to me of both of their lives was their commitment and devotion to Jesus Christ. Their lives and now their legacies remain an encouragement to me than as I seek to follow in their footsteps in my walk with God and in my own ministry. Well, here as we come to the final verses of Abraham's life, we're given an inspired example from God's Word of a man who himself lived a full life well and who serves then as an example to all of us even all these years and centuries after his death. So let us then read together of these last days of the life of Abraham. Genesis 25, verses 1 to 11. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begat Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Leumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abigda, and Eldea. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived. 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, 
and was gathered to his people. And his son Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahai Roy. Before we continue, brothers and sisters, let us go again before our Lord in prayer. Father, through this sermon series, we have learned many precious truths from your word through Abraham's life. But this morning, may we learn the most important of all, that as we just sang, our only hope in life and death is Christ alone. Christ alone. May we see Christ as your word is preached. May Christ be raised before us the one through whom our hope is found both in life and death. And Father, I pray you'll be with me as a preacher who myself and my only hope for myself and my only hope is Christ alone. May Christ then use my meager and small efforts to bring your glorious and gracious word to your people for our comfort and blessing so that we will look to Christ. And that through the faithful preaching of your word, that our minds will be renewed, that our souls will be transformed, that our hearts will be inflamed to live our lives in devotion to Christ, in a steadfast faith for all he has done for us as we wait to receive the fullness of our inheritance when he returns. So, Father, we pray you'll be with us and ask these things then as we focus our attention on the word preached. And we pray these things in the name of our glorious and gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So what is our final lesson from the life of Father Abraham. Simply this, that since our sins deserve death, our only hope is in God's promise of salvation. Since our sins deserve death, our only hope is in God's promise of salvation. We see this through the end of Abraham's life in two parts. First, through a division of descendants in verses 1 to 6. And second, through a day of death in verses 7 to 11. So a division of descendants and then a day of death. Let's begin then verses 1 to 6 with a division of descendants. And as we here come to the end of Abraham's life, let's reconnect his story to the larger history of Genesis. Genesis, of course, is the book of beginnings. Let's go back then to the beginning where God himself creates the world and everything in the world. And he then creates humanity as his great climax, as those who were created in his image. But after God's adversary, Satan, tempted our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, they rebel against God by sinning against him. And 
all of us then inherit these sinful and selfish hearts of rebellion against God. Which is why the original sin of Adam and Eve brought God's curse against the world and brought then death into our lives, which separates us from God until we face Him in judgment for our sin. But in the midst of God cursing Satan, he also gives a great promise to us in Genesis 3, verse 15, where God says that to, to, to the serpent Satan, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is then the first proclamation of the promise of the gospel of salvation in Scripture. But in this promise, we learn that there are then two seeds of humanity that continue in the world. There is the promised seed of the woman, and there's the satanic seed of the serpent. And these two seeds are opposed to one another. But it is this promised seed of the woman that will bring God's salvation into the world. Well, Adam and Eve continue and they have children together. But as they do, they have two sons, one from each seed. The promised seed was Abel. But then the satanic seed was Cain. And what happens next? Out of Jealousy and anger. Cain murders his brother Abel and then threatens the promised seed, which is why God provides another son of the promised seed through Seth. And these two seeds then continue generation after generation until they begin to mix in marriage when the promised seed of the woman starts to marry those from the satanic seed of the serpent. And this is often, unfortunately, what happens in a sinful world, that we decide we know better than God, and so it's better for us to marry who is forbidden than for us to follow God in faithfulness. Once more, then, the promised seed is threatened through this mixture in marriage in Genesis 6. So God's promise is much more threatened, which is why God then decides to judge sinful humanity through a global flood. But he first chooses a man named Noah. And together with his family, Noah is saved from his watery judgment so that God's promise of salvation will continue. That's why God then enters into a covenant with Noah, which promises that this world will never again come under a flood of judgment, which then sets the stage for God to keep his promise of salvation in this world. But once again with Noah, we find these two seeds continuing. See, out of Noah's seed, or out of Noah's sons, excuse me, we find the satanic seed who then make up the nations of the world. And they are then again judged by God for uniting together in sin to build a tower in Babel. But there's also the promised seed, which continues through Shem. And Shem brings us to Abraham's father, Terah. And of course, then to Abraham himself. So it's this man, Abraham, whom God has chosen to call out of the nations so that the nations will be blessed through him. Which is why God then enters into a covenant with Abraham, promising to bless him with descendants who will become a special nation and with the promised land for them to inherit as their own. So we have these two covenant promises, descendants and land. Now, I know that's a lot of history I've just sought to cover, but let me try and summarize. 
that while we sinned against God, we came under God's judgment through death to then be punished under God's wrath in hell. But God promised us salvation from his judgment when he creates two seeds or lines through the generations that are opposed to each other, the promised seed and the satanic seed. And God then chooses Abraham through which his promise of salvation will come, which is why he then builds on his promise of salvation these further covenant promises of descendants and land. But now, after Abra everything Abraham has gone through, we come to the record of his final years. And we see that God has given him a small taste of his blessings while Abraham waits by faith for God to fulfill all of his promises. Now, many of you know that I'm not supposed to eat dairy, but dairy's my weakness. And one of my big weaknesses, because I'm not to have milk, is ice cream. So one of the problems I have is when I go to an ice cream shop is the many varieties. How do I choose? Well, of course you go to an ice cream shop. They, they have those little spoons, which seem to always get smaller and smaller, but you can get a little taste of the different kinds of ice cream to decide which one you want to buy. It's like God gives Abraham and Sarah, his wife, a little spoon of the great blessings to come. And in his life, he gets a taste of the greatness of the blessings that come to those who believe and trust in him and wait for the fullness of the blessings to come. Abraham and his wife Sarah have been dwelling then in this promised land of Canaan while they remain foreigners and visitors. And we find God then also pro um, blessing them with his promised son Isaac, who is miraculously born by Sarah when she is barren and can no longer have children. And Isaac now has a wife, Rebecca, through whom Abraham will have more descendants to come. But remember, Sarah was not Abraham's only wife, was she? And Isaac was not Abraham's only son. Because in their impatience, Abraham sinfully married Sarah's servant Hagar as a concubine. And together they had a son named Ishmael who was then cast out of Abraham's house with his mother. So Abraham has two kinds of sons. He has natural sons who are born according to sinful flesh. And he has a supernatural son born according to God's promise, which serves God's people Israel, who come from Abraham as a reminder that it's not enough to simply share the same blood of Abraham as his natural children. But they need to share the same faith of Abraham in God's promises as his true spiritual children. You see, our relationship with God is not found in our ethnic identity. It's not because of our family connections. It's not because of who our parents are or because of where we live. But we must have a personal relationship with God by trusting in Him and in His promise of salvation. So as this chapter begins, we see that Abraham takes another wife, right? In chapter 25, we see that he has another wife whose name is Keturah. Now, here's the question. Does Abraham marry Keturah after chapters 23 and 24 when Sarah has died and his son Isaac has been married? Or are we going back here to another woman that Abraham has taken as a concubine earlier in his life besides Hagar? And there are debates among 
Christians and commentators and scholars over this question, we really can't know for sure, since Abraham here does live another 35 years after Isaac was married to Rebekah. But I do think it's more likely that Abraham married Keturah earlier in his life. Why? Because Abraham has already complained of being too old to have children back when he was 100 years old and received the sign of circumcision, and yet here we find him having six more sons to Keturah. You know, it wasn't only that Sarah was barren and couldn't have children. Abraham also complained that he couldn't have children. And as we read in Romans chapter 4, verse 19, Paul writes of Abraham, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So it seems to me that having six more children after Isaac, as old as he was, would have required more miracles from God. And these are not miraculous sons. These are natural sons whom God has who, through another wife, a concubine here, Keturah. So what it seems is happening here is Moses is showing where several other people and nations who then come to surround Israel in the promised land, it shows where they come from. You see, they too have Abraham as their father, but they are not the descendants of God's promised seed, which come through Isaac and Rebekah. And we can see this through their names. Now, I know as we're reading Genesis and, and specifically here in Genesis 25, it's hard to pronounce the names. They're foreign to us. We don't understand them. But in the Hebrew, these names have meaning. Keturah itself means incense or spices, which seems to indicate the way in which those who come from Keturah live. And this is seen through the names of several of her sons, because these are the places where spices and incense would be traded which would have then been heavily sought after in the ancient world. Remember when Jesus is born and the wise men come, the, the gifts that are given? You have gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Frankincense, incense, spices. These come then from those who are, are through Abraham and his concubine here, Keturah. So these names of these sons become tribal names in the cities and regions going into Syria and even beyond into Arabia, which is why we later read in Scripture of the Midianites and the Medanites. But what do we find here? Once again, we see Abraham's sinfulness in polygamy. Right? There's polygamy that is happening in these verses. God's original intention was for mankind to marry one man and one woman joined together to become one flesh. But polygamy enters into the world through the sin of Lamech, which we read of in Genesis chapter 4, when Lamech takes for himself two wives. And now Abraham of the promised seed has three wives. His wife, Sarah, along with two concubines, Hagar and Keturah. So God allows polygamy for a time, which is why he then regulates in his law for his people how polygamy is to be practiced until Christ comes and he restores God's intention for marriage between one man and one woman. You see then, while we recognize Abraham's genuine faith in God's promises, we're also reminded of Abraham's sinfulness and of his need for salvation as a sinner. His hope was not in himself. His hope was not even in his faith. But his hope was in God and God's promise of salvation to come. So Abraham has 
these concubines and the sons that come from these concubines. But don't miss who Abraham gives his inheritance to. Who receives Abraham's inheritance? According to verse 5, he gives all that he has to Isaac and to Isaac alone. Because Isaac is, God, is, is Abraham's only son of promise. See, while Abraham's other sons are his children, they are not his promised children. They are not then the descendants that God has promised to receive the great blessings of inheritance that were to come. And yet, in a great kindness from God, they are still blessed in this world, aren't they? It's not that they get to watch as Isaac receives everything and they receive nothing, but they, they do receive things as well, don't they? They too enjoy many blessings here. They're given great gifts from Abraham as well. He gives the children of his two concubines gifts. So God's special grace is given to his chosen people. But we also see here how God's common grace is given to all of his image bearers. And they too, we find them enjoy many blessings from God's hand in this world. We all receive far more than we deserve. Whether we have faith in God and his promises or not. But they're not included among God's people. And if they're not included among God's people, that means they can't receive God's they can't receive the inheritance that God has promised. And what was one of the two covenant promises God gave to the descendants of Abraham? The promised land of Canaan, which means these other sons cannot live there. It is not their land. They are not children of the promise. They will not live in the promised land as Abraham's descendants through Isaac because they are the ones whom God's giving this land to. So Abraham sends these sons eastward. But do you remember the significance of going east? This was more than merely heading in a certain direction. But going east is moving away from God. Now let's, let's, let's see this a little bit. Let's go back to Genesis. We'll, we'll do a quick survey. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. And we'll look at verse 24 together. But here we have Adam and Eve. They've fallen into sin. They've come under God's judgment. Now they're cast out of this Garden of Eden where they lived in God's presence. And so we read there at the end of Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, as they're cast out. We read there, So God drove out the man, and he placed cherubim where? At the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Well, now let's go to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. After Cain has murdered his brother Abel, what do we see happens here in verse 16? Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, where? On the east of Eden. Or let's go forward to Genesis chapter 11 when we come to the Tower of Babel as humanity unites together in rebellion against God. Genesis 11 verses 1 and 2. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed where? From the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Or let's go to the next chapter, Genesis Chapter 13, verse 11. Remember, Abraham and Sarah didn't go to the, come into the land of Canaan alone, but they came with Abraham's nephew, Lot. And God had so blessed Abraham and Lot that they decide to separate. So we read in Genesis 13, verse 11 of this separation. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed where? 
east. And they separated from each other. Do you see then what is taking place here? These sons of Abraham, these natural sons of Abraham, not the promised son of Abraham, they are sent east. Away from the promised land and the inheritance to come to live in the presence of God himself. You see then how there is this separation, this division that comes between the descendants of Abraham. Before we continue, though, we all need to wrestle with an important question. What is your relationship with God? Really ask yourself, what is your relationship with God? Are you living under God's judgment in sin? Or are you trusting in God's promise of salvation? Because God's promise reveals his love for sinners. And he knows that his, the only hope for sinners is in God's promise of salvation. So when God's day of judgment eventually comes, there will be a final division between those who remain in their sin and those who have their sins forgiven by the blood of Christ. Because Christ is the one who fulfills God's promise of salvation by taking upon himself the punishment we deserve as he dies on the cross in our place. This then is the hope for sinners, not in ourselves, but in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the very promise of God all the way back from when we fell into sin. Our failure leads to God's grace and kindness. And our sin does not prevent us from the love of God overpowering us through the sacrifice of Christ who died for us. He then is our only hope but he is our only hope, as we already sang, in life and in death. Which then brings us to the second part of these final days of Abraham, where we read of a day of death. So there has been a division of descendants, but now a day of death in verses 7 to 11. We read of how long Abraham lived, 175 years. Now to us, that's a long time. None of us know anyone who has lived 175 years. As a matter of fact, according to the world records, the, long, the oldest person who has ever lived was a French woman named Jean Lawitz Kaluma. She lived 122 years. But here Abraham lives longer. 175 years. And yet, while this is longer than we live today, God created us to live in his presence forever. He created us to not die, but to enjoy eternal life in his presence. But ever since humanity fell into sin, we find here through the years and the generations of Genesis that our lifespans become shorter and shorter which is why they become what we're used to now. See, we will all die due to our sinfulness. And the same is true for Abraham. He too eventually breathed his last. But in his life, as long as God gave him life, God was gracious and kind to Abraham, wasn't he? I mean, the emphasis here is on how God gave Abraham a full life, that Abraham dies at a good old age. 
And this is exactly what God had promised Abraham when he entered into covenant with Abraham. Back in Genesis 15, verse 15, we read, God saying to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And now that's exactly what we read has happened. Because God will always keep his word. Abraham dies at a good old age. And because of Abraham's faith in God and his trust in God's covenant promises, he lives a long life after enduring many struggles while he patiently waited for God to fulfill his promises. So I appreciate how John Calvin describes Abraham's life. He says, Abraham deserves the praise of wonderful and incomparable patience. For having wandered through the space of a hundred years while God led him about in various directions, contented both in life and death with the bare promise of God. Let those be ashamed who find it difficult to bear the disquietude of one or a few years, since Abraham, the father of the faithful, was not merely a stranger during a hundred years, but was also often cast forth into exile. What's Calvin saying? Calvin is saying, when we have faith in the bare promise of God, we wait patiently. And this waiting can take years and years and years and years. For Abraham, it took over 100 years. Yet how impatient we can be. How quickly we can be impatience and even come to doubt God's promises as we wait. May Abraham serve then as an example of patiently waiting and trusting in the bare promises of God until the blessings finally come. But as Abraham died, don't miss the last phrase of verse 8. He was gathered to his people. Now, this doesn't mean that he was gathered to his family. Remember his family, where are they living? Hundreds of miles away in Mesopotamia. No, he's, he dies and he's buried in the promised land. So what does it mean to say he was gathered to his people? It's a recognition that death is not the end of our existence. But there is an afterlife. And as our father in the faith, Abraham would be gathered together with all those who trust in God's promise. As he looks forward to the resurrection, where we will all live in his presence. Which is why in one of the first English study Bibles in history, the 16th century Geneva Bible, we read in the notes on this verse, Hereby the ancients signified that man by death perished not wholly, but as the souls of the godly lived after in perpetual joy, so the souls of the wicked in perpetual pain. There's perpetual joy waiting for those of us who have faith in God's promises. Which is why our steadfast hope and why Abraham's steadfast hope through his life, and as he died, was in Christ, who accomplishes our salvation and in whom we look forward to then being raised up from death with resurrection life. That's what we read in our scripture reading this morning. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember the verse 20. This great confidence we have in the resurrection of Jesus. We read, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Our future inheritance is certain because Christ has risen from the dead and served as the first fruits of all of us who will then rise from the dead when he returns. This then is our hope as we live under sin and the curse of death. So Abraham has 
died. It's time to bury him. And look who are back together for their father's burial. Isaac and Ishmael. But don't miss the order. According to their birth, who was first? Ishmael. He was older than Isaac, but here Isaac is given first. Why? It shows their spiritual status. Remember earlier, Isaac is called Abraham's only son. Why? Because he's the only son of promise. So here we have Abraham's two preeminent sons burying him in the cave of Machpelah, which he purchased as his own land there to bury his wife Sarah back when she died, as recorded in Genesis 23. What we find is that Abraham and Sarah have lived in the land of promise, and now they will both be buried in the land of promise until God's promised blessings will be fulfilled. And these promised blessings will come through who? Isaac. Who God then blesses after the death of Abraham. Because he is the one whom God has chosen to continue the promised seed of the woman. So Isaac is the one who becomes the next father of God's chosen people, Israel. And it's through him that God's promise of salvation will come. So with the death of his father, Isaac comes to dwell at Beer Lahai Roy, which if you remember is where the Lord speaks to Hagar. as she is cast out and goes to the wilderness with Ishmael. But that shows the significance of where Isaac is living. Because Isaac now dwelling in this place reveals that he will displace and dominate Ishmael as Abraham's true son. And this conflict between the promised seed of the woman and the satanic seed of the serpent continues. So as Abraham's life ends, we see Isaac's life continuing to carry on God's promises and they will continue on from generation to generation through the book of Genesis and through the rest of the Old Testament until God's appointed time for our Savior to appear. So I want everyone here to listen, especially the children that are among us. No matter how many years God may give you, your day of death is approaching. Now, you may look around you and you see some gray and white hair and you think, I'm going to be living for years. And maybe you will. But Abraham, who lived 175 years, still died. And we too will die because your day of death is approaching. And whenever someone dies, have you been to a funeral? Whenever someone dies, their burial is a confirmation of our sinfulness. Which is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that death is our last enemy and no one will escape death's hold on us. So as we all wrestle over the coming of our deaths, May we all embrace the hope of the gospel as Abraham did. Remember the glorious and precious truth that this, these verses reveal to us that since our sins deserve death, our only hope is in God's promise of salvation. Praise God, since our sins deserve death, our hope comes through God's promise of salvation, which has been given to us in love through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of the woman who came to save us 
from death and from God's judgment. And it's through our faith in Him that we are then given eternal life to receive our promised inheritance of resurrection life in God's presence. And so the completion of our salvation is certain because our Savior Himself was the first fruits when He was raised from the dead and He reveals our hope when He returns. So I ask you this morning, is Jesus Christ your hope? Listen, is Jesus Christ your hope? Look to Christ who takes his, your death upon himself on the cross and receive forgiveness through his shed blood for your sins. Turn away from your sins in repentance. Turn to Christ in faith. Repent of your sins and receive Christ as your Savior. Because in Him, you have a sure hope through life and death. Christ is our only hope. He is our only hope. And when Christ is your hope, death is no longer your enemy because your grave is also the place where you will gloriously be raised from the dead to live with God forever. And in between your death and the resurrection, your soul will rest and rejoice in heaven where Christ is now ruling and reigning until he returns. This is the life we are to live in this world. One by faith in God and His promises, waiting for our inheritance to come when Jesus returns. So I appreciate how Ian Duguid writes about what we can learn from Abraham's life. Listen to Duguid. He says, Yet we too know what it is to see in part to know in part, to experience in part, even the fullness of the Holy Spirit that we have received is simply a down payment on what we will one day receive. Like Abraham, we too must live by faith and die by faith, receiving in part, but not yet receiving in full what God has promised. Brothers and sisters, we have so much to look forward to. May we live by faith in life and death as we wait for the fullness of our salvation to come. Now let's turn to one last passage of Scripture in this series. We're going, we're going back to Hebrews 11, and I know we have been to Hebrews 11 several times. But there's a reason. Because Abraham is our father of the faith. He is our great example of faith which is why he's included here in Hebrews 11. And after writing of the faith of Abraham and Sarah, we have this hope summarized, this hope that I pray and hope we all have in verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Are you living by faith as one who looks forward to the heavenly city to come? That is what it means to live by faith in God's promises. That is what it means to live with the one true hope of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this was the hope of Abraham. This 
was the hope of R.C. Sproul. This was the hope of Ted Chrisman. And this is the hope of all who are trusting in Christ for our salvation through faith in Him. May we all live with this hope that while our sins deserve death, our hope is in God's promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, what a hope we have in Jesus. And while we, Father, we, we, we pray that we will live as Abraham lived by faith. And while we may recognize that as Abraham lived by faith, he sinned, we too may sin. And yet we have a confidence that in Christ our sins will be forgiven. They are forgiven and they will one day be forgotten because of the joy that we will have living in your presence. May our hope remain ever before us. May we not, Father, become so focused on this world or the pleasures of this world or the busyness of this world that we neglect or forsake this hope. We pray through the Holy Spirit, of whom is a down payment because of Christ, who is the first fruits, that we will live with this confident hope in your promise of salvation to come in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray for all of these things in the name of our Savior and hope, Jesus Christ.